0: Welcome to Gu Dao Jinxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Taoism to uncover timeless wisdom and discuss how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach, David Wong. The science of your Today we're very excited to have with us two guests, the co-hosts of Climate Change and Happiness, a podcast that covers topics about climate change and our emotions and how to cope with this crisis. We have with us Panu Pikala and Thomas Doherty. How are you all doing this morning?
1: Doing well Ian, thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting us.
0: Our pleasure. We haven't had many guests on our podcast, but we're expanding. And so, you know, we're very humbled and, and pleased to have the two of you join us today to talk about the Dow of ecology. So first would one of you care to just tell us a little bit more about your podcast, Climate Change and Happiness?
2: i can start and then panu can weigh in that's how we typically work uh work in our podcast um well i'm a psychologist broadly um trained in psychology and clinical and environmental psychology and uh the, our podcast has a curious name climate change and happiness because those two terms aren't typically uh equated with each other in our in our modern world but that's 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 the kind of question that we live in the podcast is the meta question is what, is: what does it mean to be happy in the in the in the modern world here in the era of climate change? Uh, and what we, what really we work on is our feelings, our climate emotions, our personal uh, impressions. How climate change and environmental issues affect our mental health and our feelings and our relationships? So we're trying to create a, a place where where um, this can be talked about openly because because. We know that people don't often feel comfortable talking about climate change and environmental issues, and it's a bit of a taboo subject. So we we create a place where we talk about all different aspects of that. And uh, it can be really liberating for people. Mm.
1: Yes, and I come from Finland, living in Helsinki, so there's some international cooperation built in our podcast. We usually do it Thomas's morning on the West Coast and my evening in Helsinki, which is also when we are recording to today. And I come from a background uh, of religion and ecology or religion and the environment. So this topic at hand is very close to my longstanding interests. Uh, but for the last eight years, I've been focusing on so-called ecological emotions, meaning emotions and feelings with are significantly related to ecological issues and that's how I've come across first Thomas's uh, written work and then our conversations and the podcast is really about uh, how to live a good life or meaningful life amidst these challenges which we are fa- facing now. So happiness is one concept, but it's also related to many of the core issues in various world worldviews and religions, well, namely uh, how, how should we be living and what, what would be the good life or meaningful life?
0: Obviously super important, and I know recently the media has also been noticing the importance of dealing with our emotions in the midst of a huge change in our environment. I know Outside Magazine, The Guardian, they've recently been speaking to you about what you're encountering. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're discovering as you explore these themes in your podcast.
2: Pana, do you want to talk about this recent Guardian um, story that just came out? Because that seemed to be a pretty um, not surprising, but but kind of for this day, a, a novel idea that there's all this the, the clergy and spirituality has a role to play in people's
1: climate coping. How did that? How did that come about? Uh yes i think that's totally correct that there's an increasing interest in various media about this and the guardian is one of those outlets who have been discussing this for at least five years and probably even even more but for a very long time this dimension wasn't acknowledged at all. And Thomas can tell more about that, but then uh, in the late 2000s, the American Psychological Society started working more on this, and then we have very influential individual researchers, especially from the fields of eco-psychology, who have been discussing this, but but on a whole, it was surprisingly little coverage that this affective dimension got, uh, considering that that because are humans we are so strongly often guided by affective phenomena so there was a great disc disparity or discrepancy between the amount of coverage and the importance of these issues in our podcast we every second session usually have have a guest and we discuss various aspects of, of this and the wide scale of emotions is important for us, so we are not just focusing on so-called positive emotions, we even try to avoid the binary distinction between positive emotions and negative emotions because that can be misunderstood as meaning that the positive emotions are the good ones. So we want to be open to the wide scale of human emotion and the importance of various emotional tones. And that again, I think, is a link to worldviews and religions where often emotions such as sadness, for example, have been encountered and not just uh, been efforts to bypass those emotions, as sometimes happens for example, in market market led companies and and so but how how about you, Thomas? what would you like to go where would you like to go from here?
2: yeah, the media question is is slippery because um, pro- probably um, you both uh, can in, uh, in terms of taoism can think about how the the subject of of the dao is brought up in the media it it, uh um uh the media is not always our friend because it it it, often journalists um they adopt a they 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 feel like they've discovered something for the first time uh and they they write about something as if it's new there's there's a bias that everything is new and just discovered whereas we know these are Ancient ideas, um, so there's there's a there's a little bit we need to be able to step back with the media. I mean, that's where the Dao. That's another place where the Dao is helpful because you know um, these are ancient ideas. The media is is kind of hooked on novelty, so it, it'll, it'll rediscover something and it and it inadvertently, um, it, it, inadvertently um, get. Tells the public that this is new and undiscovered, and it keeps the public kind of confused. Um, but uh, I just know that you know our connection with nature and the natural world, and our feelings about environmental issues, is long been covered in the news. You can go back as far as you would as 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 far as you would like in any history. People have been concerned about environmental issues, or fires, or hurricanes, or forest fires, or extinctions. Uh, when I read the Dow, I think of people like uh, Henry David Thoreau, for example, you know, in the U.S. writing in the 1840s about, you know, environmental concerns that he had. So, um, uh, but each generation sort of does rediscover these issues in, in new ways. And there's a and there's a new generation in uh, the Outside Magazine story you you referenced was, was, a, was a young woman, a, a journalist, a really great writer, a journalist who was struggling with her own climate grief, and her own questions about whether she should have children and all these sorts of things. So these are eternal questions uh, uh, that keep being rediscovered in new ways. And of course, the lens of, of global climate change is really apocalyptic for people. So it really, it really. Um, um, I mean, at some point we can talk about being attached to things, but people are, are very attached to climate change, very attached to the threat. It's so, so in their their psyche that they can't get any distance from it, so that's where these messages in the Tao are, are radical. You know, can you step back and you know let yourself settle and and practice non non doing is incredibly hard for people <laughs> in the modern era when they're gripped by climate change or on the East Coast if they're concerned about smoke to suggest that they practice non doing and being equanim have an equanimity with the world is incredibly radical i guess it probably always has been
0: yeah i think there's there's a lot of connections to make to Taoism and what both of you said definitely panu the idea of not separating emotions into good and bad that that's a hundred percent aligned with Taoist thoughts on Things mutually specifying themselves. So, for example, you know, long and short, they're not two different things. There's just one state, if you will, on, on a spectrum and, um, and holism. I mean, essentially, holism is probably the, the deepest idea of Taoism that I think also Some forms of non-medical model psychotherapy are extracting that we aren't individual creatures. We're a relationship that's interpenetrated with our environment, with our other relationships, with everything and everyone around us. And so this idea of uh, a self, we understand, is, is pretty illusory. But yet, we live in a society that says, "You should try to attain as much self notoriety as possible and achieve as much as you can for that self and you know and then we have an economic system that's built on top of that that then it's about okay, well, how can I extract as much as possible from the environment for?" The glory and satisfaction of the self, which we know is illusory. It's a backward way of looking at things that, um, this whole thing, which in Taoism is the Tao. I mean, it's, it's a mystery. Like our human minds can't fathom it, but we do know that, oh, yes, we, um, we know from quantum physics that the universe is just, constantly rejuvenating itself out of seemingly nothing. We don't know what's below this realm of possibility, but Thomas, like you were saying, what, what modern physics discovered is exactly what was talked about in, um, this Dallas text that, you know, there, there is this mystery we can identify it, but we can intuitively sense it and the forms and, um, Things that we sense are constantly arising out of that, and it just timelessly perpetuates itself. And so, you know, the Western concept of time and progress and a linear history is obviously very difficult to to shift into a timeless perspective, one where there is an eternal moment that just it changes, but it is just one moment. And everything within that moment is connected. We're all connected. Every atom and molecule and vibration in the universe is connected. And so, no, there's not good and bad. There's just Tao, which is constantly unfolding. Um, But our environment, we know this sort of illusory belief system, this one that perpetuates individuals is destroying the actual environment that we need to live. And so hence the, the emotions that are arising can be um, quite different than what people have been used to. And, and so this Western way, this Western philosophy is really being challenged in a critical way now. And, and so wondering what your reactions are to, um, Taoism talks about the three treasures being kindness, moderation, and not putting ourselves first. With what you understand about ecology and the situation that we're in, how, how might those Taoist virtues be helpful?
1: Yeah, if I if I begin, I think those three things are of course of huge importance and this is closely related to my long-standing history with religion and environment and for example the yale university has this forum on religion and ecology a website also which features nice overviews of many religions in the world and how they have tried uh, to grapple with the ecological crisis, so on one hand, this reminds me of many religions who have the idea of moderation or frugality. Some have the ascetic idea, and you know, restraining so that your impact uh, is suitable for the common common good and making that virtuous. So that's one one very important part. And many people have linked it to uh, re- restraining oneself from overly consuming or having an overly strong eco- ecological footprint, so so to say. Kindness in many ways, of course, towards the modern human world, but also towards ourselves. That's a theme we might return a bit later. I'd like to talk a bit more about how important that is in relation to so-called eco-anxiety or ecological distress for example or ecological guilt but then uh, a major issue here is of course uh, related to power and societal chains and i see this happening also in relation to many forms of christianity which i have studied studied and practiced myself so there are very important virtues and ideas But then uh, the trouble is how to implement this in societies. And, how, and what, so what's 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 going to happen, of course we need role models and we can have a vision that, you know, uh, leading by example and believing that it's still important and virtuous and honorable to do so. But just wanted to give some general comments and also raise up this tricky issue of how to uh, leave this in practice and spread it in societies.
2: Yeah. No, these are, these are really juicy uh, concepts that the, the, the kind interesting in terms of kindness, I was just talking with a young woman, 17 year old. who's uh, actually a student in the same school that my 15 year old daughter attends here in Portland, and she's was referred by her parents because she was really concerned about uh, she has been had her consciousness raised about climate change and has been an, a young activist in the sunrise movement uh where where you're you're ancient if you're over 19 and um she was struggling with her summer she's a dancer and she was going to go fly to a, a dance camp and she was going to fly to a language spanish immersion camp in costa rica and really um, really paralyzed a bit about her flight and the carbon footprint and really has been feeling guilty and terrible about that and so one of the things that i talked about with her was a uh kind of a model that i've used with people with their own carbon footprint you know it's it's an acronym UROK. okay so it's understand uh reduce reuse recycle offset and be kind you know so it's sort of like understand your carbon footprint try to reduce as much as you can try to offset maybe through carbon offsets what you what you literally can't um, reduce and then be kind to yourself and others, and so that's that's a concrete way where where kindness comes in because we can be very hard on ourselves if we have we have we have values. Um, um, it's a paradox about putting ourselves first or not because a lot of people who are environmentally concerned they have values that respect other species and are also quite altruistic. And there's kind of three basic values that lead us into environmental action, either egocentric concerns for ourselves or altruistic or, you know, ego, ecocentric in terms of other species. And so she's definitely altruistic and definitely concerned about other species, but it translates into this personal guilt, which is concerned about the self. So, uh, it's all very interesting. Um, and then moderation is just, which is hard to tell a 17 year old, but, you know, take your time. We'll figure this out. It's going to be a while you didn't create these problems. Um, so that intense pressure that people feel to take an action to change the world is is really, um, you know, it really almost paralyzes them. And so this radical message of take your time. Let's work in moderation. Let's try some experiments. So all these things can can really be, you know, explored in, in very concrete ways.
0: David, I, I'm kind of curious if if you could talk to us a little bit about um, Thomas. I think you touched a little bit on the Taoist concept of Wu Wei, which is non-action, and it, it's kind of a complex word um, because literally it it doesn't mean non action so david i'm I'm wondering if if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about how to reconcile the Taoist concept of Wu Wei with what humanity as a whole maybe needs to do to address climate change
3: yeah that's a that's a very uh interesting and also a very practical question i I come from the world of executive executive coaching so a lot of time in the business world uh you know we're trying to help uh leaders especially more um more sophisticated leaders to have that kind of discernment because the business world is a world of action but at the same time there are a lot of noises around the leaders the leaders need to be able to choose what to do and what not to do so wu wei uh you know just literally translation seems to be like not doing anything but when you look at the essence of taoism it's really about doing the necessary thing i think a lot of times uh in our modern society we tend to overthink and overreact, and that itself causes a lot of problems. So in that kind of context, uh, you know, actually, I want to raise a question for all of us, uh, because we all come from different worlds, you know, professionally and also culturally. I think the reason we, you know, spend the precious weekend, you know, to meet virtually, uh, virtually is because we all care about You know, climate change. We care about happiness. We care about you know well-being. But sometimes I feel like uh, the world is getting so chaotic and out of control that individuals, just by all ourselves, are kind of powerless in a lot of ways. The one question I want to pose to us is how we come from you know different you know professional backgrounds and cultural background and use what we do every day to create that awareness. And, and also especially figure out how that awareness can be translated into authentic action. Because you know, as Thomas said earlier at the beginning of the conversation, there are a lot of people, a lo- lot of players, media, politicians, business people, scientists working on this issue. We all come from different angles. Um, So what I'm seeing is um, fundamentally, I I guess a lot of times, and there's the old saying, "Where, where you sit is where you stand. You know, where you sit is where you stand. So I think that makes it very challenging for us to forge a cohesive force to really address it, because this problem is so urgent. You know, we can't wait to do it uh, kind of slowly. But at the same time, I see a lot of the activists which make problem worse, because that creates polarization and debate that distract us from this chaos. But I want to pose this question is a little bit you know a complete question here but i think it's worth our time just kind of contemplating
2: where you sit where you sit is where you stand uh, thanks david i've never heard that um i've never heard that saying before and it's really helpful um well I'll, I'll just add quickly and then panu can can jump in too but um yeah there's a number of parts to the question um uh you know there is the um when i used to do um and years ago, I used to do outdoor wilderness um, expeditions and wilderness therapy with young people, kind of outward bound style, multi, you know, long trips into the backcountry in the U.S. kind of wilderness tradition. Um, but when we would study our first aid uh, for helping people with medical issues in the backcountry, you know, there was a saying: um, you know, "Stop, survey the scene; don't create another victim." Right. So when I'm rushing, I, you know, there's this tendency to rush in to help someone. But if someone is is you know, down a rock face, I might, if I go and run after them, I might fall also, or I might injure myself. Or if someone's, you know, uh, in in a situation, I might get sucked into it too. And then there's two victims to two victims to rescue. So, so I think that one one part of your your question is that ability to stop and survey the scene. It might even just take thirty seconds. You know it, there's it's not black and white uh you know it doesn't mean like you say don't do anything it just means take a moment to survey and i think if we can do that more as a habit then we'll we'll recognize more of that oh i'm sitting here this other person's sitting there there's a whole environmental identity piece that we talk about in our podcast about You know, I have a certain environmental identity based on my life and my life story and where I'm from and my parents and the region that I grew up and my social class and obviously my culture, environmental identity in China and Brazil and the U.S. and Finland are similar. There's a lot of parallels, um, actually beautiful parallels, but there's also, you know, also quite different cultural places and so different kinds of environmental identity. So. Um, if I know that I have environmental identity, then I know that other people do, and then it it helps with some of that translation. But if I don't take a moment, just a moment, you know, could be thirty seconds, could be a minute, could be five minutes, could be five hours, could be a day. It depends on the problem. Uh, but um, you know, then I think it's more likely, um, more likely for us to to understand and be. You know, discernment is another great word. You know, we can be more discerning. It takes it takes a little time to be discerning.
0: It it makes me think of uh, another Taoist saying from Daba Ching, which is that the old sages, they walk as if walking over water with a, a thin frozen layer of ice.
3: Oh, I just rem- reminded of also the Victor Frankl's you know famous saying between stimulus and the response there is a space and that space lies our freedom and growth. I mean, I just when Thomas when you just kind of describe the situation, just slow down and take a m- minute to be quiet and observe I think the way you describe it, I think it kind of changes the way I listen to this conversation. So I think we all need to cultivate every day this kind of spaciousness that helps us get a little bit deeper beyond our surface, you know, our skins, our colors, you know, our ideologies, you know, all our, you know, conditioning and baggages.
1: Yes, very important points and David, your question and comment is so complex that it could lead us into at least 20 different di- directions, but resonating with uh, words helplessness and powerlessness, which also come up in many surveys about people's ego emotions or climate emotions. And there can be various reasons for them. Of course, a big, big reason is that these problems are global on, on scope, so they can't be solved by individuals or even single con- countries. Well, China could solve a lot of things because it's so big, but for us Finns, it's even even different. But anyway, we need the global, global co- cooperation. So that's one dimension. And I very much understand the sense of urgency that many, for example, young people and young adults feel. Uh, and at the same time, it would be hugely important to have that capacity for that discernment before rushing into into action. But this also goes to, I think, quite complex issues about various meditative and contemplative and wisdom traditions, where personally I've always walked more of the, you know, be, be a mi- mindful r- walker route. But I also see how for many people, especially in situations of injustice, the ability to also use the uh, good energies in righteous anger, not violently, but also being open to that more fiery energy. So that's been interesting for me to reflect on that on the last last 20 years and goes back to various backgrounds and also types of personality, I, I think. But just one final thought here. Uh, Renée Lertsman is a scholar of uh, psychosocial dynamics around environmental issues. And we discussed with her in a recent episode. We both know her from some, some years back and Thomas even more. So she's been pioneering a uh, project called Project Inside Out, where the idea is to have facilitated questions with the approach of being a trustworthy companion on the road so not hierarchical telling from above that what you should do but more like trying to be a men- mentor or a trustworthy guide and sometimes she does this with companies also and uh, because as you say, David, people are so different. I think this kinds of, kind of approach is very much needed because we can't always know what's going on in people's mi- minds and bodies and what are the things which may prevent them from engaging with ecological issues more fully. So it's it's really this open communicative facilitating attitude which can help and that, of course, can be deeply intertwined with this sort of mindful, discerning uh, attitude that I hear Thomas and many of you speak about.
3: Yeah, you you talked about, you mentioned China, right? So the immediate reaction I had is sometimes I feel in this arena, people make the, the assumption that economic or political or international power kind of counts. But when you look at it really closely, I think a lot of the nations, the big countries are really driven by geopolitics. So I I guess like one of the things I observe is we need almost, we need the top down and bottom up, uh, you know, efforts uh, to have a real impact. Because we need the resources to make things happen but only resources, we assume, or you just throw in the money. Uh, I don't think that works. Really, the change of heart and change of mind, and even change of our soul in a lot of ways, uh, that really creates more powerful conclusion. Because otherwise, we're just seeing ourselves, You know, the technologi- you know, the technology people, they think, oh, just build up that system. But that system without spirits, just like in Taoism, is hollow. So, you know, from that perspective, I, I wonder, uh, you know, for Thomas and uh, 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 Panu, um, you know, from your world of scholarship and from your world of profession, right? So the people, let's say, in the world of, you know, uh, therapy, uh, I assume that you work mostly with a lot of individuals so that individual the first touch is to touch their own psychological well-being and then they probably their awareness their consciousness tends to expand and radiate into their community i was wondering what kind of effort like say from your world of therapy how far that go does that awareness can you know convert into uh, change your behaviors, and that behaviors also, uh, you know, lead them, your your clients, to do something. So that's the question for Thomas. Question for the uh, for uh, Pern- 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 Your scholarship. How does that I- world of ideas translate into policy or or action with different institutions? And we know the institutions the trust in institutions decline nowadays.
2: Well, those are great. Yeah, those are, that's a, that's a great question too. And that, that, that action, it's important. Um, I work with a lot of mental health therapists now who are, who are trying to learn about being so-called climate conscious therapists and things like that. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're rushing in, they want to take action. They feel urgent, urgency and pressure. Um, and so a lot of it is like what we've talked about is getting them to stop for a moment and to step back, to think of their own environmental identity, their own environmental values. I mean, it's a truism in any kind of therapy that you need to, you need to have done some of your own insight work about that issue. If you're going to help others, other, others with the issue, otherwise things get confused. And we get into this idea of, which issue is it and counter transference and all these kinds of therapy ideas. Um, so cause the therapists themselves are human and citizens and they're dealing right like now, you know, in the East coast, they've been dealing with the smoke. They've been dealing with the storms, you know, so it's getting them to do their own, getting them to do a little bit of their own work. And then many therapists see themselves as change agents. They want to be a part of the solution. They want to get people to be more environmental. But it is so fraught with so many problems because we know our global system is, is entrenched in certain ways with technologies and power and fossil fuels that the individuals don't create and don't control. And, uh, and we even know that there's, um, you know, fossil fuel propaganda that has been actively fomented to get the public to blame itself and to deflect from the, you know, positions of power this, we are all to blame narrative that it's the, it's the consumer's fault, you know, about their, about climate change, which is a very insidious and dangerous, toxic um, story, especially for young children to take in that it's their fault because it obviously isn't their fault. They didn't create the economy or any of these things. Um, So some of it is liberating, we do want to act, but we have to liberate ourselves from some of these toxic narratives that blame ourselves. Um, and so, I, in my therapy work, um, I try to create a, a kind of a firewall between the therapy world and the action world, so that they're not they're not muddled. Because the activist, even the activists that are longtime activists, they need a place to go out of the battlefield to come and just be, be with themselves, and to understand. And then, yes, they can go back in to action. But knowing there's two, two mindsets, two places, so that's that's a part of it. Um, once you get that, then we can be more discerning about, okay, what action, what scale of level do you want to work at? What are the barriers? Those are all really you know, tactical questions, which are interesting. Um, but you can really only do that effectively if you can kind of be able to step out. Like an athlete, you need to call time out and come off the field and think about things, and also train yourself and get strong and you know to go into action. And for a lot of people, it's all it's all muddled. So I think the therapy world can help to create a little separation, which is a, is a great great place to start. But it's a hard message because people want quick takeaways, and and they if they're really a lot of all a lot of underlying a lot of our conversation is our physiological stress our physiological stress reaction in our body you know when we're when we're discerning and we're equanimous it means we're breathing and we're we've got some relaxation but when i'm super stressed you know my tunnel i have a tunnel vision it's like look like i say it's like looking through a paper towel roll i just see little you know. and you've got to get people to come back um so it's 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 not easy Um, and then sometimes people think, well, you're not really, you're not, you're not with me if you're not taking action. It's then it's the with us against us. So, you know, again, it is like walking on the ice, like, uh, like Ian said earlier, it is kind of weak and we can, we can break through the ice. We break through
1: and we, we we're flailing in the water and then we have to get back on the ice again. Yes. And building some bridges between those questions and Thomas's answer. Uh, This work with so-called ecological emotions, uh, it can sometimes help people with different kinds of action, and I think action has to be defined quite broadly here. So for some it may be community building, for others it may be more to be on the front lines, referring to Thomas's metaphor also. One of the recent research items I did was a conceptualization of a process model of eco-anxiety and ecological grief. The heart of the model is sort of three dimensions of action grieving, which includes other emotional engagement, and distancing, including both self-care and avoidance. So, based on various kinds of research and literature, I'm arguing that we need all these three, at least to a certain, certain extent. Uh, and that's that's one way in which research as well as therapeutic practice as thomas says can help to increase people's resources to do whatever needs to be done or they feel feel called to be done in relation to this ecological crisis or polycrisis or whatever ever ever we call it
3: panu uh, in your uh, ecological theology because You know, Taoism, Taoist uh, notion of nature uh, in some ways very different from the modern Western notion of nature, which is more reductionist, you know, like, uh, you know, basically the physical realm of things. But when you trace, when I was at Harvard, I read all the classics, right? The, you know, the um, Aristotle's, the people, the uh, mystics in the Middle Ages, Actually, there was a notion of that interconnectedness embedded in the Western thinking. It's just in the modern years, you know, because of the Enlightenment, you know, we're using, you know, the scientific revolution. We start to kind of drive apart those two spheres. And when you are working on the talking about nature, it's really like the natural science, you know, the mechanics of it. While the spiritual, metaphysical, even ethical part is kind of left, like say that's the older tradition. So, do you see that there's kind of a coming back? You know, maybe weaving with some of the thought, thoughts from the, you know, Taoism and other, you know, wisdom from other parts of the world with that traditional strand of the Western thought. Because I thought I don't think the Western thought we are inheriting today is the Western thoughts throughout history. In history, there are a lot of people who are spiritual, mystic, you know, interconnected with, with nature. They are just pushed to the margin, and then the scientists kind of march on. The technologists, you know, they, they march on as the mainstream of our society. What, what's your take on it?
1: Yes, thank you. That's fascinating and, I think, very important. Uh, Paul Sandmeyer. Um, eco-theologian and justice activist from the States did a historical study in the 1980s called The Travail of Nature, The Ambiguous Ecological Promise of Christianity, roughly this this title, and that refers to a famous passage uh, among those who have read the Bible for environmental content. Um, Paul's letter to Romans and chapter 8, there's this phrase about the travail of nature, so that's the uh, reason for the title. But St. Meyer's point is that there has been this what he calls ecological countercurrents in uh, the Christianity and closely linked to many strands of Western thought. Uh, so it hasn't been usually in power. There have been some forms where it has been more prominent, like certain forms of Celtic Christianity, for example. Uh, but then what he calls the spiritual motive, which is more like emphasizing the soul uh, in a way which is not emphasizing the interlinkedness of, of body, mind and soul. So that's been more prevailing. then there's thousands of pages written in history of ideas about where do these dualisms come from and greek philosophy and enlightenment are some of the usual suspects but there's, there's there's plenty i personally believe that humanity's sort of primeval take on the world is not dualistic i believe in the strong sort of holistic Character of that primordial experience, and it's very in- interesting to compare this to uh, the ponderings about the spirituality of of human human apes, for example. So, so how how is that? What is the numinosity the sort of se- sort of sense of se- sacredness? And uh, personally, I think it's always related to some kind of experience of encountering something profound and bigger than oneself, where there is always a relation. So I'm, I'm not oriented towards an object-focused ontology, sorry for speaking in techno- technical terms here, but a sort of mode of existence which is profoundly relational. And in this I've been shaped also by the times of my dissertation studies where the figure was Joseph Sittler, an American ecumenical and humanistic theologian who uh, got much inspiration from process thinking alfred north whitehead and others and sittler had sayings like to exist is to coexist or i am nothing apart from everything so so what you are saying david resonates with these kinds of lines of thaw- thought But I think that they have been more counter-cultural. There are many people who are now raising them up. There are interreligious and very broad movements going on. But of course, we have also very strong forces of, let's call it neoliberal capitalism or whatever we want to call it.
3: Right. I'm not sure I can see it in my lifetime, but I feel like the emergence of another level of consciousness on a global basis, despite all these polarization and geopolitics is emerging. But I'm not, sh- uh, you know, uh, uh, that it c- level of consciousness may, with some luck, can help us solve the problem. But right, right now we're in a time of transition, almost like inflection point. And that consciousness, you know, even like at the time we're together, when you're just describing it, I feel like, wow, you know, this East and West. You know, who who makes that kind of artificial duality of it? You know, very way back, way back, we we're just like an, an egg, the cosmic egg, right? You know, with the yolk, and then it's all connected.
0: The, the, the things that are coming up for me, I think in, in Taoist thought, we talk about when things get pushed to their extreme, they become their opposite. So again, just showing that there, it's not a non dual thing. It's, it's, this is how things work. So, you know, for example, when after the coldest day of winter, we know it's turning towards summer after the hottest day of summer, it's turning towards winter with. Neoliberal economics, I mean, essentially this um, way of looking at existence in the world through GDP and how can we make that number as big as possible and every country is trying to do the same thing. And there's certainly nothing. Numinous about that to exist and be blind to the numinous experiences that are available in every single moment, unfortunately, is the system that we're all subject to. So it's the opposite of spiritual. It's, it's, it's a number and numbers don't have emotions. Numbers don't have spirit. Numbers don't have any of those things but if we lean into Taoist philosophy when something gets pushed to its extreme it becomes its opposite and so and this is where um i'm not saying that people shouldn't do anything because again we obviously want to live meaningful lives and we want to live in a way where We're showing our love and our care for existence. But it does seem like this neoliberal order has been pushed to an extreme. And so in Taoist terms, it will become its opposite, that we will enter into a numinous era. And what that looks like, we don't. No, but if i was going to posit a, a a taoist version of hope or or faith and what might happen we can just look and see you know yes a, 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 an economic gdp system has been pushed down everyone's throats now across the world to an extreme amount and a numinous era must arise as a result what that looks like how it looks like obviously there's lots of possibilities but i would guess that that is what will ultimately happen
2: yeah part part of the challenge in therapy is to is to help people sit with this process because um Well, earlier david mentioned uh had a question about communication across from different perspectives and so you know we there is this elephant of climate change that uh we talk about in the pod our podcast it's like the blind people and the elephant like we we see different parts of these these larger issues and and we know certain parts quite well but we're not even aware of other other parts so um that humility I mean, because as I hear us talking, I I know from my research that there are a lot of people that are doing other things like gross national happiness, you know, in Bhutan or the well-being economy. There's an initi- initiative for well-being economy in Scotland and in Finland. So people are working on this in different parts of the elephant, you know, um, and so I think strategically as we as we um, get into this all these insights that people have and you know ian was just talking about are all so valid and then we realize oh okay where where is someone doing that that i can imagine my saying is if i can think of it I, if i can think of it someone else probably is as well so and i and even better than i'm doing it you know so uh so i think you know therapeutically then it's sort of like oh did you realize that this is happening over here or this is happening over there and you might you might align yourself with this or I talked to a, a an elephant trunk person around climate change social justice or whatever and I say, well you know this person over here is working on spirituality and this person over here is working on well-being economy you know can we you might want to go talk to the person there so there's that's that's kind of a thing that comes up uh, for me, because I'm always thinking about all of these kinds of things and making notes and, and noting all these things, um, so it's a it's a kind of a it's a kind of a connecting. So we, I really get tired of the whole countercultural scenario where all these ideas keep pushed to the counterculture. So I try not to, I try not to play that game. I try to try to push against that, uh, because yeah, ecological insight and has been part of our human history forever and every every single age we forget about environmentalism even from the 1940s and 50s when people were talking about connectedness you know emerson and thoreau they british romantic poets we're talking about this obviously ancient texts we can find ecology all the way through you know there's a through line of ecological holistic thinking all the way through um western all different cultures but we have to sort of um but yeah whoever the the victors write the history you know and so sometimes these histories kind of marginalize these these things so i'm kind of i'm kind of just reflecting in numerous directions right now but uh, just just something to be aware of you know there are good people doing good work all around the world and how can we align with them that's just a comforting message i try to give to people
0: Thomas and Panu, I've noticed that we've run out of time for today. And, and Thomas, that sounds like great words to reflect upon as we finish our time for today. Obviously, it's an ongoing conversation. It's a process. And as you said, we're not alone. There are people out there doing all different types of work. We are connected at a level that we fully can't appreciate. And so. Find out what that good work is that you want to do and find the people who are also interested in it. And maybe we'll be able to have some more happiness, even in the midst of this climate change. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We make this podcast for you and is entirely listener supported. If you find value in our discussions of Dow, please consider making a small donation at walkingthetimelessway.com. We also want to hear from you. Please write to us anytime via the website. The science of you